0: Hello, welcome to the podcast. I hope that you are doing so wonderful today. I'm really pumped about today's guest. Today we are talking about medical fat phobia with Jenna Taleda. I do want to give a trigger warning. These topics can be heavy, right? They can be sometimes hard to hear. So I do want to offer you space right now to just kind of check in with yourself of, you know, how are we feeling today? Are we open and able and feel safe to listen to this topic? Today, we are talking about medical fat phobia, where it comes from, how it actually, you know, impacts care for people in all different body sizes. Um, And then we talk a little bit more about advocacy. If you are someone living in a larger body and you are not accessing the right treatment because of the size of your body, how do we get to advocate for ourselves? So it is a big conversation, an important conversation, and I'm so glad to have Jenna here with us to talk about this. Jenna has been a registered dietitian for 16 years and a certified eating disorder a certified intuitive eating counselor for the last six years. She's worked in a variety of settings, but really found her calling when she found intuitive eating. Prior to that, Jenna had struggled with her own body image, chronic dieting and emotional eating. She now works as a virtual dietitian, helping people let go of diet culture, finding food and body freedom, even if they have conditions like diabetes, for example, right? Like no matter where you are, that's what she does she lives in northeast california california gosh she lives she lives in northeast florida with her 11 year old son mason and her fur fur babies mars and bianca i'm so excited to have this conversation today and i hope that you're gonna love it too all right let's get to the podcast episode welcome back to the podcast today we have jenna here with us hi jenna hi thank you so much for having me thank you so much for being here this is actually our second go at recording this podcast because we had audio issues but here we are we're back we persisted we did we did <laughs> I love technology sometimes oh gosh. we love it so much because it's so useful and then when it doesn't work I'm like I don't know what to do <laughs> <I>
1: know,
0: <right? laughs> oh goodness! Well, today we have a really cool episode, a podcast episode planned, and we're going to be talking about medical fat phobia, which is a big topic. And I'm so glad, Jenna, that you're here with us. But before we talk about it, I'd love to get to know you a little bit more. Um, you know what got you to do this work? What do we do now? And just like your origin story.
1: Of course, of course. So, all right. So, my the way i came about this is actually interesting um uh, i became a dietitian back in 2007 and i worked in different places and things like that but i never really found my my niche in dietetics i felt like it was uh like i didn't really fit right in those places i did do those standard diet culture language and you know at the time Mm. i was helping people with weight loss, I don't do that anymore now. But, um, uh, you know, I was doing all of that stuff, and it just, nothing ever felt right. But Mm -hmm. I ended up getting a position at this drug rehab hospital. And I found that there was a lot of people there who had eating disorders, and at the time I didn't have much experience with it because um, they they don't really go through that during our our dietetics education. Um, it's more of an overview there, and so um, so I really didn't know. So I did some research to see how I could best support these these people. And um I found that intuitive eating was a very successful approach. So I I started reading the book and the craziest thing happened while my intention was to help my clients I started reading this book and realized that it was written for me. And and I everything that was in there it was like it was like the authors like had this camera into my life and just knew exactly what I was dealing with. And it was ridiculous about how much it resonated with me. And I was like, I was like crying the ugly tears as I was reading this book. And I was like, oh my God, yes, that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and um It was just it was so crazy. And I honestly, I didn't even realize that I had any sort of particular issues with food. Um, You know, as a dietitian, I thought, no, I'm good. I'm fine. You know, I don't have any of these problems. Um, But actually, I did. I had all of them. Mm -hmm. And um, and, you know, it just I mean, I had like the standard I hate to say it's standard, but the, the standard body image issues that most people have, you know, the, the, oh, does this look okay on me or, oh, am I blah, 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 you know, but Mm it, it, it didn't seem like it was an intense diagnosis, but Mm -hmm. there was this, uh, like about a year before I found intuitive eating, I had actually gone through a, um, a really bad divorce Mm. and um it's really it was really a hard thing and my my um ex-husband was saying the reason he was it was okay for his cheating was because i was fat Mm. Uh, and he also added some other things on there too uh that i was crazy and i was unemployed because at the time i was and um and so he he said that that was okay for him to cheat because of that and it just it just stung so hard mm-hmm. like you know why is is this my fault is my the end of my marriage the my fault and so after after we ended up going our separate ways i felt like i needed to change my body um in order to make things better that uh you know especially with being a dietitian there's not many dietitians who are in bigger bodies they're usually stick figures or or what have you normal si- norm, quote, 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 normal Steinberg. size yeah and um and, and so being in a bigger body, I figure people wouldn't take me seriously as a dietitian, you know, and so, and then I was figuring, oh, well, no guy's ever gonna like me because I'm in a bigger body. And, um, and so I forced myself on this ridiculous restriction. Mm-hmm. It was so ridiculous. I'm not gonna go into detail about what I did, but it was so ridiculous. I couldn't even explain it to other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was just, there was just, it, it had to be very perfect, and if I didn't eat in that perfect type of way, uh, you know, then I felt the guilt. I felt the shame, and I was constantly obsessed with food. I was uh, anxious about the scale. Um, I, you know, even though I got down to some arbitrary number, it never felt like it was ever enough. Mm-hmm. And I had this one person, one of my friends, was saying that I didn't look well. And it's like, no, I, am still in the, the wrong category, you know, the wrong BMI category. I, I, I can't be underweight or anything because I'm not in the right number, you know? Mm -hmm. And I thought he was ridiculous for saying something like that. But looking back at my pictures back in the day, I could see how I was, um, how I, how Uh, slim I had gotten. And, um, and so it was just, it was a really hard time. And and it finally, it got to a point where um, it it was Thanksgiving, it was my birthday. And um, I had changed all the recipes so it could suit my restriction. Mm. And I even made myself this It doesn't even deserve to be called a cake because it it wasn't a cake, it was this Goo. It was disgusting. <laughs> it was disgusting. And I forced myself to eat this for my birthday. My birthday. Oh my gosh. Uh, and um, and and it was just like I at that point it was it was kind of my breaking moment. I was like, how can I force myself to eat like this? You know? And I was like, okay, so after the holidays are over, I'll just uh I'll go back to you know what I was doing before. But then when those when those holidays came and went, I couldn't bring myself to do it anymore. It was just too much. It was too restrictive. It was too, it was too much. And so I kind of just let myself go willy nilly, you know, just like kind of eat how it was kind of pseudo dieting to be Mm -hmm. fair. I I mean, I was kind of restricting to an extent, but not to the extent I was before. Mm -hmm. And then once I found intuitive eating, then I realized, yeah, this was a problem. So, um, um, so anyways, I knew that this was this was the place that I was supposed to be. This is what I was supposed to be teaching other people and helping them improve their relationship with food um, mm-hmm. and their, with their body. And it's um, and so shortly after I finished reading the book, I went right into the certification program and I did all of that. And by November, December, I was a certified intuitive eating counselor. That's amazing. And so, and since then, I've just, I've been constantly learning and working on my own relationship with food as well as helping other people too. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. First of all, thank you so much for, for sharing with, with all of us. I really, truly appreciate it. And I feel like there's so many gems in your story that I know people will be able to relate to. Um, I think a few things that stand out for me, it's really this idea of like disordered eating is so normalized in our society that we don't even fucking know when we're doing it. Like it's such a big thing right like especially like as a dietitian we're in the profession like we do and also like let's just name that there's a lot of dietitians who also have eating disorders that's also a fact but I mean like it's it's crazy to think that like many of us do these things that are clearly very disordered but either we're praised for it or there's so many people around us that do the same thing that we don't realize that it's disordered
1: exactly exactly and to, to go into the conversation, the medical fat phobia, there's so much pressure to eat in that type away from different uh, health professions, I, I, including myself, which I think is why this why this topic is so important to me is because mm-hmm. I realized what I was doing to other people, yeah. and um, before I learned about this stuff, that it, it broke my heart that I was causing harm to other mm-hmm. people, and. Yeah. And now I want, you know, it, it hurts me to see other professionals doing the same thing.
0: Yeah. Um, and I, oh, I can really tease so much when it comes to that, because I mean, we all start in a weight centric model because that's what we're taught. Like exactly. one, when we're like, you know, like even before dietitian school, like just the, the society we live in. And then you're like four years in university where you're drilled down that like your weight yeah. is the thing all the time. So I think for all of us, and especially now that we are anti-diet, like looking at our old self is like cringe worthy that you're like, exactly. I can't believe I said these things or I thought these things or those were my beliefs. And I think you being able to share that and being vulnerable gives a lot of people permission to evolve. Like we yeah. all get to change. And when we know better, we do better.
1: Exactly. And we
0: can have compassion for that like younger <laughs> dietitian who was just... Trying to do her best, but she had it wrong.
1: <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. You yeah. know, and and these these folks, yeah. I think we can offer them some compassion, but we can also challenge their food and body police voice because they do have them, and they do get very hung up on them. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. Compassion does not mean permission yes that's so true <laughs> that's a very good point
0: yeah we can that's have be compassionate and tell you that it's not okay yes exactly a hundred percent um and then thank you also for sharing about you know with I can imagine being such a hard time with your divorce and the words that your husband said or your ex-husband mm-hmm. said like how difficult that is and I know and I know I know I know and I know I have clients listening to this I can relate to that too like it's a direct attack on the body that we have. And then it makes sense that then what we do is like, okay, hyper-focus on this body. This body needs to change. Like the body starts being like the scapegoat and being like, all my energy will go towards this because it doesn't feel safe to live in this body anymore.
1: That's so true. That's a really good way of putting it. I like how you said that.
0: Yeah. 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 I appreciate you sharing. But let's talk about uh, medical fat phobia because that also, like you said, plays a big role in how we all relate to food in our body. I wonder if we could, before like digging into it, kind of explain like what it is. Like for someone who's maybe never heard that term before, like what do we mean when we talk about medical fat phobia?
1: So medical fat phobia is where, um, and I I don't have any sort of like official definition, this is just only my interpretation. Um, So medical fat phobia is pretty much when you come into any sort of healthcare professionals office or, or what have you, and their focus is changing the scale no matter what your concern is, their focus is changing the scale. And they also are, They I noticed that a lot of healthcare professionals come from a place of restriction all the time, that it's always about vilifying food and saying, this is the automatic cause of your issue. And mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is that it, there's a possibility, you know, that that might be something that's happening but chances are just like how intuitive eating talks about it's it's our approach to food it's how we hold food into a certain light it's about how we put food on pedestals it's -hmm. about how often we let ourselves eat and things like that it's not necessarily exclusively always let's just put it that way it's not always about vilifying the food plus we Mm -hmm. also have to consider too is that people may or may not have access to that kind of food or they might not have uh they might not be able to to tolerate it or they don't even care for it you know um so Mm -hmm. you know but from those kinds of places the the healthcare professionals they get so hyper focused on the scale Mm -hmm. let's let's face it a lot of these like doctors and nurses and all of those kinds of professions they come from a science and math education. They are focused on numbers numbers is what's drilled into them that they need to get to a certain number. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're, they're constantly taught so much about their studies that the O word the i i don't know i don't want to say it if it's not okay but the 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 o word uh is going to be the cause of all of these health issues or whatever and it's the fact that they misinterpret that information and it's not necessarily those causes but yeah. Were you yeah. going to say something? It looks like you had something. No. Yeah. That. No, I love everything that
0: you're saying. Like the way that my brain tend to like conceptualize this is like, I'm imagining it's like the, when the health provider brings like all of their like weight biases and like stigma and then discriminate against somebody based on their body size. Like mm-hmm. it's really just seeing the person for the body that they live in and nothing else, but then it does That's impact true. the way that they get to access care and treatment afterwards.
1: It's um, so true. I, I I just, I, I've talked to many folks who like, like there's one person in my mind particular that had had something called a hiatal hernia, which is, uh, it's a hernia like like close to, it's in your soft stomach area and it makes it hard to digest food and things like that. Um, and the doctor refused to do surgery or refused to do any sort of treatment until the person lost weight. And the person was in a bigger body and he was doing whatever he could to try to get to that arbitrary number. Uh, Mm -hmm. but it, it wasn't working and we know why that doesn't work. But, um, uh, but the doctor refused to do any Mm -hmm. sort of care and it broke my heart. And I had to sit there, I had to sit there and, and, and talk with him about this. And he is like, he's begging me for weight loss advice. And in my heart of hearts, now that I know about how this doesn't, it's not a permanent fix and that, you know, it's just, it causes more harm than it helps. How am I supposed to help somebody with weight loss in that sense? You know?
0: Yeah. Um, well, so it's almost an impossible situation because <clears throat> I feel like, oh, excuse me. I feel like doctors will be the first one to be like, oh, you have a boo-boo. Here's weight loss. Like everything, yes. everything that's wrong with you, weight loss will fix it. Like it's very much like that type of like lazy medicine. But then when you look at the evidence, you're like, all right. So like, let's say the weight loss is the solution. Let's say, let's say I agree with you on that. Then what? Like we have no diets that have been proven to give sustainable weight loss, you know? And it's very, it's a very difficult one pill to swallow, but also just realization of like, you are setting up your clients to fail.
1: Yes, it's so true. There was even a study that I was reading where actually people who lost weight prior to any sort of like procedure, like a surgery or whatever, if they lost weight, they actually had poor outcomes than if they stayed stable wherever they were.
0: Well, Um, I
1: want to share a little story from a family member.
0: This happened like only six months ago where they had to do a hernia surgery too. And they were told to lose weight to do that. And they had four weeks to lose this pretty significant amount of weight, and they ended up doing like extremely disordered behaviors, like being in this like ridiculous calorie deficit, like doing all of these things. And I mean, I do the work that I do, so I'm like triggered, and I'm like, "What are we doing? Like, this is this is bad. Like, people go to inpatient settings for this type of behavior. Um, So I like urge them to tell the doctor about this. Like, let them know what you're doing to get this weight. Like, there's no way they're gonna agree that this is legit no they were like congratulations for your discipline and being able to do this
1: that is medical mind. fat phobia in its perfect example because it you know just the fact that people in bigger bodies are praised for their discipline for their restriction for their disordered eating pattern and the smaller bodied people are sent to treatment for that and uh-huh. it's just it's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And uh, I just, uh, I just, it breaks my heart. Um, I know.
0: I know. I'm with you. It's yeah.
1: I, I I was just going to say, sorry to interrupt. I I was just going to say, um, my son is naturally uh, in a bigger body Um, before he actually, he had, I'm pretty sure that he had undiagnosed ARFID which is avoidant restriction food intake disorder. It's pretty much picky eating to the millionth degree and uh, where he only has like maybe three to five safe foods that he'll eat. And he had a period of time where his his growth was very uh, stunted and it was, uh, he was very low on the graph and things like that. And and it was concerning, it was very concerning. And, um, uh, and then eventually he started adding more variety. He added more consistency with his eating and we were able to, work our way through that. Um, And so now he's worked his way into a bigger body and that's probably because his body was trying to catch up to where he was before, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, or not catch up, but like, because it was smaller, his body kind of rebounded in the other direction. Mm -hmm. And plus uh, we also come from bigger people in our family as well. So um, anyways, so after having dealt with this, ARFID uh, uh, issue, I ended up taking him to a new pediatrician, and this pediatrician, uh, he he was a slender uh, doctor, young slender doctor, um, and he, he walked into the room he looked at Mason's um, growth chart and everything like that and immediately started jabbing him with the kids sitting right there, um, right there about his weight. he's looking at me and talking about his weight. And I told him, and this is me who has lots of education and training on this stuff. And I was, oh, I just felt like beside myself throughout this time. And, um, I kept telling him listen i don't want to focus on weight but the doctor wouldn't stop harping about this stupid number and it's like listen i just got through helping this child work through a significant eating disorder and now you're you're upset because he's uh up on the growth chart and and he wouldn't let it go and then finally after i gave him some fat phobia education <laughs> He's like he, he got he got annoyed with my my stuff he, he really thought that i didn't know what i was talking about because i didn't agree with him and um and so finally he he just like he resigned to what i he, he didn't want to fight with me anymore he didn't want to fight with me anymore could you imagine And so he finally listened to my actual concerns of what I wanted to talk about with, about Mason that were completely unrelated to his weight. It was just like his regular health, his, his mental health, his, you know, how he's doing with all of these other kinds of things. That's what I wanted to focus on, but no, he just had to get so, so hyper vigilant about that stupid growth chart and. It's just it's heartbreaking. Oh, and uh, eventually, I, we did talk about doing some sort of lab work together, but I'm pretty sure the lab work that he wanted to do, he wanted to like check his cholesterol, I'm pretty sure that that was just like it was going to be ammunition for the doctor to say, oh, look, he's got elevated cholesterol. See, I am right about this. We didn't end up doing the uh, the blood work because I didn't want to hear it from that doctor. And he was fine otherwise. There was no other issue, So there was really no need to do blood work. But I would have, you know, I would have bet that if a smaller body child would have come into that doctor's office, he wouldn't have done blood work if, if it was necessary, but he was just doing it for ammunition. Yeah. So, and it was really hard. After that session, that doctor's appointment, I was, I was done. I was done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, my Mm -hmm. neural pathways, my emotional eating neural pathway that I have there, it totally came to life. And I just felt like I needed to go and eat to comfort myself at that point, which we did ended up getting some food um, because of, uh, you know, we were hungry too. But it was just like, even as a professional who's had all of this training, it still was completely draining to have to go to those doctor's appointments.
0: Yeah, of course. Like, it's such a hard thing, especially I think when you're, I think doing it for ourselves and advocating for ourselves, but also like seeing a loved one go through this. And the more we know, and the more you kind of get to see like unfair treatment or biased treatment, um, it is extremely difficult. And I'm curious if we could talk about like the impact of medical fat phobia? Like how does it impact the population in general? And then I'd like us for us to talk about like eating disorder specific, like how does it impact folks with eating disorders? Hey, hey. I'm just stopping this podcast episode to let you know about our eating disorder recovery program that is coming back this September. So for the whole month of August, we will be offering weekly info session to tell you all about our eating disorder recovery program at the Balance Practice. So as you may or may not know, the Balance Practice specializes in eating disorder treatment across Ontario. We offer a multidisciplinary approach to your care. We offer meal support, group therapy, family support, everything that you need to recover from home. If you are interested in joining this structured, amazing, beautiful creative program to support you in your recovery, you're going to want to join us in our free info sessions. The goal of these sessions is to really give you all of the information that you may require to make an informed decision to see if this is the right space for you to be. In these info sessions, you're gonna learn about the program, the deliverables, so like what's included in it, how the treatment works, our approach to treatment, as well as just you know the way the program works in terms of length of time and cost. So, if you are interested in joining us to learn more about the eating disorder recovery program, you can go to www.thebalancepractice.com forward slash info session to join us for our free information session. All right, my friend, let's get back to this important podcast episode.
1: Oh, man yes You're like
0: um, here we go this is going to be yes. an like we're gonna like just you know this is what it is <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's so much to say there there really is a lot to say and yeah, yeah i you know what this it impacts so much and it, it impacts people with eating disorders and ones without eating disorders mm-hmm. um uh so it, and you know, people avoid going to the doctors
0: because mm-hmm. they
1: don't want to have to sit there and fight through that. They don't want to have the trauma of having to get onto the scale. Um, they don't want to have to hear an earful from the doctor or be de- decline uh, uh, procedure or treatment just because they're in a bigger body. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a- everything, everything that they diagnose in bigger bodies can happen to people in smaller bodies, Mm -hmm. Um, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, even, Um, uh, you know, different kinds of things. They all can happen in people in smaller bodies as much as bigger bodies, but the smaller body people get the treatment and the people in bigger bodies don't.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I kind of see it. Like it impacts, and like in my brain, I always divide things in two. Like I think that my brain is just like a dual brain, <laughs> but I see it like one, the like wanting to go get care. Like you said, like people will not go see a doctor for years on end, even if they hurt, even if there's something happening because of the poor treatment that they receive every time. Like it doesn't make, like, why why would you go somewhere where you're getting shame? Like, it just doesn't make exactly. sense. But then even when you do go, you're one, still shamed. But then also you're not accessing proper care. Like there is so many studies that show with weight stigma that folks in larger bodies will not get the right diagnosis many times um, or just won't get access to any diagnosis because they won't even look at that before you lose weight or do, you know, change your body.
1: Exactly. So it's like
0: being able to access the care you need, but even when you do access it, it's not proper care
1: yes it's so true there there was someone i was talking to last week um and she went to the doctor and she was having some some sort of like foot issue and the doctor didn't even examine her didn't even didn't do a physical overlook or anything like that she was just sitting in the chair and and you know, and the, the person was like, listen, I'm trying to do this, this and this with my eating. I'm trying to move. I'm trying to do blah, 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 blah. It's just not working. And I would like something to, to, to do with my foot, you know. Yeah. And the, the doctor was just like, no, it's it's not. It's just because it's just because you're in a bigger. I mean, she didn't use these words, but it was just because you're in a bigger body. And, um, and so you need to lose weight. It's all your fault. And I just like you said before, it's like it's lazy medicine and so many times i i feel like i feel like it's a catch-all where the doctors might actually not know what's going on or even put the effort forward to see what's going on but i think even if they did put the effort forward to just do the exam and try to figure things out when they don't have an answer for something, it always falls back on weight loss. Mm-hmm. Always. Well,
0: yeah, because weight loss is your own personal ownership. They're like exactly. washing their hands, right? They're like, well,
1: whatever. Exactly. You try to figure it out. It's so true. It's yeah. so true. And and maybe maybe part of that comes from. I mean, aside from all of the, you know, the fat phobia they hold on to, which is definitely very present and real. Yes. Um. Uh, I think it's also the fact that they're pushed so hard to see so many people in a day and that they just need to just pass the buck, you know, they -hmm. just need to prioritize who they need to see. And it's easy. Oh, somebody's in a, in a bigger body that they're just not prioritized. They just need to lose weight. We can just, I'll give them some, you know, sort of restrictive crap advice Mm -hmm. and and uh, I can move on to my next person as fast as I can yeah. and I think I think that could be a part of it too
0: but just oh, there's definitely like systemic issue through yes and I know like here in Canada is a little bit different than the state and still like it's definitely like yeah the the system is not set up no. <laughs> the way that we would want it to and it's interesting too so my mom's actually a physician and she oh has been learning a lot about weight stigma. Um, And she she also lives, you know, in in a larger body. So it is something that she's experienced herself and then, you know, kind of brings into her practice. And even her being in a larger body and knowing about all these things, it's really interesting the way she talks about it, like all the pressure that she gets from the medical community and the judgment that she gets around her ability to perform as a doctor because of the body that she lives in. But it's really interesting. Like they, she even started a um a weight stigma class at the university here in Ottawa for all new doctors. And I'm like, yes, mom, cheering you on. This is so good. I am so excited to hear that.
1: That's amazing. It's so needed.
0: It's so so needed. Um, and I find it always interesting too because at the end of the day, like I I like to believe that people in the medical profession are in this profession to help people. Like deep down, they want to help in my, yes. my belief, right? Like, and they want yes. people to be healthier. That's they're in the health field, but there is such a big disconnect where they don't realize that, or they don't care to realize, I don't know what it is, that the weight stigma, stigma though and the fat phobia is actually worse for people's health
1: Yes, exactly. than the
0: weight on their body. um, and, the, and what they're doing is actually very much so impacting their health outcomes. And when it we look is. at the concept and principles, like the health at every side, where we can kind of really understand that the, the weight doesn't really matter. <laughs> and like, no, you know, matters. really being able to like engage in health ab- uh, um, activities and having proper access to care actually impacts like health outcomes so much more.
1: It does. Um,
0: We actually hear, sorry, I'm like going on all these tangents, but I'm like loving the conversation.
1: I'm right there with you.
0: (laughs) We had the um, quote unquote obesity guidelines come out two years ago now here in Canada. They like redid everything. And like, I think like all the anti-dieticians were like waiting for it. We're like, all right, what are we going to say? What are we going to do? Like, what is different? And this whole journal was basically just contradicting, like they're kind of like on the fence between the two where they were like naming that, like, you should lose weight, you should do bariatric surgery. But on the other hand, showing that like, actually, um, if you engage in health behaviors without losing weight, you have the same outcomes. So they were saying like both things. And then they were like, they have also shown that most people cannot sustain more than a 5% weight loss but you should try to lose like 100 pounds
1: (laughs) you're just like you know I I find that that happens I, I I mean it just happened with the American Medical Association that they came out with uh something that just said about all of the racism that's tied to BMI and it sounded like oh my gosh you're getting you're starting to get it you're starting to get it And then it really was, oh, well, yeah, BMI is a crap measure, but we just need to, like, bulk it up with other measurements that are still going to tell you you're fat, you know? We just we need to do weight circumference instead, you know, along with it. Um, And and that's going to tell you, you know, that you're unhealthy. And it's like, oh, so close. Like, one step, two steps back.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the whole thing is, like, nuance, nuance, nuance. Like, we may not be able to, but in conclusion, please lose weight. (laughs) You're like, what is happening? Like what? Like, are we reading the same paper right now? Like, it's
1: (laughs) it's it's ridiculous. And and you know what? The the if if it's okay, um, I'd like to share some information about where BMI comes from. Yes. Okay. That'd be awesome. Um. So, um. So, back in the eighteen hundreds, there was this man who created the uh, initial uh ideal height and weight tables and the thing was is that he was not in the health field at all he was actually a mathematician and he had other interests as well that were completely unrelated to health Uh, like he was into art and all of that kind of stuff too but um he created these tables and and the thing was is that his tables the measurements that he used they only measured other white european males like himself they he didn't use any women he didn't use any other cultures he didn't use any other people from other countries and maybe it was because of transportation maybe it was just access or whatever but he only measured white european males and that's where it initially started from and then he was all completely praised for those kinds of tables and you know medical recommendations were based off that um and then Then fast forward to mid-1900s, the life insurance tables made their own height and weights. uh, And their biggest spiel was saying that if somebody was above this arbitrary line that they were at risk for dying sooner. Well, they only use their cherry picked clientele for that. And because they're a business, they're looking to save and make money. And so if somebody was above that arbitrary line, they could charge them more money or they could deny them care altogether. And uh, they weren't based off any sort of research at the time. There was this huge study that was happening by the National Institutes of Health. Um, And they looked at uh, about 600,000 men and women. So it was a very large study. Um, And they looked at varying aspects of their life that um, that had to do with that could potentially affect their life expectancy. Mm. They found out that those life insurance tables are as much as 50 pounds off and, um, that the people who are actually at the risk of dying sooner were the people who were in, um, sorry, if I, if I need to do a trigger warning here, BMI 17 to 21 those were the ones who died sooner. The ones who were actually in the overweight category, those were the people who had the Mm -hmm. least risk of dying sooner. and so and then the the ones outside of that, it was kind of like a bell curve where it was just like a slow kind of increase from that point. It wasn't that, that much significant outside of the overweight uh, category, mm-hmm. but it was the ones that were in the smaller bodies that died sooner. But unfortunately, probably because diet culture and the medical community is so intertwined together, they use the um, life insurance tables to make recommendations off of not mm-hmm. even their own research so um yeah. a large large study like six hundred thousand people i mean that's a lot of people right there so um and you got to figure that the diet industry is a six is a 70 80 billion dollar industry that grows every yeah. year yeah and
0: Thank They're you so just, much for adding that in. Like, I think just again, just showing how like arbitrary these numbers are, but then how yes. impactful they are in our healthcare. Right, like this came out from kind of like nowhere, not based on evidence, and yet that's why how we deny care to people. And exactly. the the one thing, like my my favorite BMI fact that like every time I'm like mind blown is also I don't know if you like in 1998 they oh, yes. overnight decided to change the categories. And this was yes. lobbied by uh, pharmaceutical companies who now had this drug for overweight people. So they wanted mm. to bring down the categories and they did. So overnight there was like millions of like North Americans who just went from quote unquote normal weight to overweight because they changed the categories and therefore now could access this new medication. Yes. Like how wild is this? <laughs>
1: It is. It's especially it's wild. wild. I mean, but it makes sense about our, uh, you know, capitalistic society. They've got to create a market. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, so they're pretty much, they're out to get people's money and they're out to work on people's insecurities about their 100%, bodies.
0: A hundred percent.
1: I'd love, I'd love for
0: us to switch gear and talk oh, just a little you. bit about how people can advocate for themselves so as they're listening to this, like we're talking about a lot of the things that are like ingest in our system and things that are yes. need to change, and the system needs to change. And as individual, I'm curious, like what are your maybe some tips or th- some um, things that you've done or that your clients have done, things that can be helpful for folks to advocate for themselves to get proper care.
1: Yes, definitely, definitely. So um, one of the things that I recommend is. Um, There's have you ever uh, heard of Maggie Landis? She is a pediatrician dietitian down in Texas. So um, she's amazing. She's amazing. And I I love listening to her and uh, she's created these handouts. I'm not sure if if you're aware, but she's created these handouts that uh, you can take to your doctor's office and they will uh, you They'll keep it in your chart that says please don't weigh, or and they also have ones that include other metrics they can use aside from catching your weight. Um, and there's also a handout that talks about how to have conversations when it comes to the weight uh, discussion. So, like if the if the nurse or medical assistant is saying, oh, let's hop on the scale, what you could say to the to that person or when the doctor brings up the number, you know, what you could say to that uh, person. So I would definitely encourage uh, people to check out Maggie's handouts. I believe that she has them free on her website. Um, So they're they're amazing. And and I definitely, I hand them to all of my people I work with. Um, But one of the major things that I would say is that first and foremost, getting someone's weight for their appointment is not mandatory um it's something that you're allowed to provide consent for anything that they do at the doctor's office there's a paper that you sign when you go into the doctor's office i consent that you you can provide me care well guess what you can provide consent about your weight as well and there's maggie talks about um that there's like maybe a handful, a literal handful of different medical conditions that require some sort of weight. Like if you have congestive heart failure or re- uh, kidney issues, if you have um, uh, weight re- or water retention, if you have uh, cancer or if you have uh, pregnancy, things like that, if you're pregnant, um, those are pretty much the main five conditions that will need like a weight taken just to make sure that you're not holding on to fluids and babies growing and all of that kind of stuff outside of that for standard medical appointment or for uh for anything like that you can always decline your weight now most doctors offices they have their protocols and they're not used to people saying no that doesn't mean that you can't say no Mm -hmm. it just means they're not used to it okay Mm -hmm. And again, as diet culture is, medical community gets very stuck on black and white about this is how things go and we can't uh, get away from that. So they can get a little bit odd about that, but there have been many occasions where I've gone into the doctor's office and they've said, can you please step on the scale I'm like, no, I I don't want to check my weight. And there and there have been plenty of times where they just moved on and done something yeah. else. But I, I have heard some folks that there are some people that get so hung up and they're like, no, nope, sorry, this is my process. We got to step on that scale. So if you don't have the spoons to deal with that kind of situation, um, you could always do a, a blind weight, which is where you turn around backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, the only problem is, is that if they use them electronic health record system, It and they give you a discharge paper after your appointment, usually the weight oh, is right there in huge font, <laughs> and um, uh, so, but, you know, if at least standing backwards gives you at least some sense of that, or you could even ask them to mark out the number on mm-hmm. the paper before they hand it to you. Yeah. Um, but, um, but that's one thing is to be able to stand up and say, you know, it's okay. No, thank you. You don't even mm-hmm. have to be aggressive about it. You could, mm-hmm. if you wanted to, but you don't have to be aggressive about no, um, no, nah, I don't do that. Wait, no, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go that direction. Cause I know most people, they just want to be cooperative
0: right. and,
1: um, yeah. and it's okay. I also
0: found too, like, if you can have like a support buddy, I know that's what yes. I have to do. Like it's so easy for me to advocate for people I love. Like I'm like, boom, here we are. And like for myself at first, I'm like, oh,
1: <laughs> I yes. really deal with it.
0: so I also found that that like if you have someone you trust and that you can bring with you to your appointment, at least to support that first initial parts to advocate for yourself or they can help you advocate for you. That could be a cool thing too.
1: I think so. Yes, that would be really helpful. Um, so yeah, cause you know, especially if you, you, you find yourself being a people pleaser and stuff like that, it can be <laughs> really hard to stand up for yourself, you know? And I, I'm, I identify with that. It's, it's, yeah. but when it comes to this kind of stuff, I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I think like the more that we also feel like, I think it's also where you are in your journey, right? Like if you're just oh, starting yes. this journey and you're like, I like this health at every size and intuitive eating thing, but like, do I believe it a hundred percent? Like, I don't know. It can be harder, but when you're like, I think where you and I are, where you're like, there's no other way. There's like zero other way to function than this. Like it gets easier to advocate because it's like a core belief now.
1: It is. It is. It's so true. It's so true. And we also tend to put doctors up on pedestals. And, and, uh, you know, when when I was a child and and maybe same for you, since your mom is a doctor, um, that doctors are. the people you go to, they're the knowledge source. They're the mm-hmm. ones who know everything. And we need to go to them for for all of our different things and stuff like that. Yep. And it can be really hard to not have that follower mentality when it comes in that sense, because we're so yeah. scared to speak up to the person who's touted as the knowledge. You know? hundred
0: percent, a hundred percent.
1: So, um, but the fact is, is that you can be the expert of your own body. And Mm -hmm. that is valid just as much as, uh, you know, what the doctor knows.
0: Yeah, 100%. Any other tips for advocacy?
1: So um, when you're in the doctor's office, um, I would say that if the the conversation does come up, the question I always fall back to is, if I were in a smaller body, how would you treat me with this condition?
0: Mm so good
1: yes and um uh yeah and and or you could easily just simply say you know what i understand uh, your concerns about my weight but this is not where i want to focus on for my care for today mm-hmm. um i just want to focus on these concerns here yeah. and you know what we can definitely say this and it takes a lot of strength to say this stuff and to, to to do this, it's not easy. Um, But sometimes we also have to recognize that even though we say these things and we try to advocate for ourselves, we are still talking to another person who can be deeply in fat phobia and not really understand where you're coming from. And mm-hmm. it can be hard to deal with that conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think making sure that you're being gentle with yourself and not yes. coming at this from a place of perfectionistic or that you did something wrong because it's not easy to to swim up a uh, stream with this yeah, this conversation
0: hundred percent. Another one that I really like to use is something along the lines of like, if they're like, oh, you need to lose weight, something along the lines of like, I hear you. Um, and my concern is that every time I focus on weight loss or start engaging in weight loss practices, um, my eating disorder get triggers, or I actually become yes. more um, unhealthy. What yes. alternatives do you have for me? And kind of putting the ownership on them, right? Like it's your job to find a solution. Yes. Weight loss is not a solution that I'm willing to go because when that is my focus, um, it actually is worse for me. Yes. Right. So like, what else do you have?
1: Yes. And I've actually, I've used that. I've used that, uh, because I, um, because I did have orthorexia and I did, um, I did have other issues and stuff and I told them, you know what, this is not good for my eating disorder. And most of them don't have a lot of training with eating disorders, just like I didn't have a lot of training. So they don't Mm -hmm. really know how to handle it. Um, but, um, but when you can bring that to their forefront, oh yeah, this person has an eating disorder. We need to.
0: Yeah. It can be like a trigger for them to be like, oh wait,
1: exactly
0: yeah yeah I had a client to like tell her doctor uh she was a little bit more like on the feisty side and a lot more like no bs and she would be like what do you suggest I do and then the doctor would give her diet she's like okay well that doesn't work did you know like there's a 95% fail rate so what you're suggesting to me is something that I'm most likely going to come back next year with more weight on my body so what else do you have And like she just like like going yeah I I know me too I'm like I wish I was you. <laughs> I, yes. to be you.
1: I love um, that.
0: Yeah. Honestly, it is, right? It's like, so even if that is a recommendation, even if I choose to listen to you, like, how do you suggest we go about this? Because no, yeah. there's no way like it's just,
1: yeah. Oh, it's so yeah. true. And, and you got to think about like, I know, I know we got to probably wrap up soon, but, um, um, but the, the doctors, they, they don't necessarily have the best relationship with food. If you think about uh, when they went through their whole like medical career or when they went through like their residency or things like that, their focus was their school. It was never, uh, usually not about food at all. They would go hours probably without eating anything at all. And so, you know, so they're coming at you with, with their own, disordered eating patterns and eating disorders as well and so they will probably shoot a whole bunch of crap about oh eat this way this is going to be the answer mm-hmm. to all your problems but really you got to wonder where you get misinformation from it's probably mm-hmm. not from a study so 100
0: yeah, uh-huh. i feel like we could do a part two to this podcast episode I know, like I- we can just keep going <laughs> <laughs> i feel like we're going to go on forever and ever and ever um, but I do want to thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I think these are like some of the most important conversation for us to start like challenging and kind of like seeing the healthcare differently. Um, where can people
1: find you if they want to learn more about you or work with you? Where could they yes, find you? Definitely. So I have a Facebook group. It's called your weight is not your worth. Um, and I also I'm on Instagram <clears throat> and I uh that's under Eating Mindfully LLC. And so um yeah, so feel free to come and check me out there. I, I would love to love to connect. So, that is awesome. So all of her information will
0: be in the show notes, guys. So you can just go ahead and click and go find her. And yeah, maybe be on the lookout for part two. <laughs> oh
1: yes. <laughs> we have I would too love many that. things to
0: talk about. Um, but before we go today, I do have a few fun questions for you. Oh, and- sure. So the first one is, what is your favorite food? Chocolate. Yes. Yeah, I mean, duh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you could have a
1: superpower, what would it be? You know, my son keeps asking me this question. He's a big Marvel fan. Um, I really don't know. Uh, I think it's the teleportation. I would love to just be able to like wiggle my nose and be somewhere else. You know, that I don't have to go fly anywhere. I don't have to drive. I just poop. There I am.
0: You can go like to Belgium and go get chocolate for dessert every night if <sighs> you wanted to. Like, that would be so
1: amazing. I know, I know.
0: Um, what is your favorite <laughs> way to self care? Um,
1: it's a great question. Um, so self care, you know something that kind of helps like soothe me. Uh, It's it's funny, but I like to watch YouTube videos about uh, people who buy storage lockers and then they go and they search through all their boxes and and you can see all the cool stuff that they find. And so I just sit there and I'm just like mesmerized and it's just so interesting to see what they find. It's like a little hide and seek game.
0: Oh, I love it it makes shows always make me think like I don't know if you have that in the states but we have like these places where you can get like su- like surprise bags and you like don't know what you're getting but for five dollars you're getting like at least ten dollars worth of like goodies
1: oh that's awesome
0: and like the excitement you get when you're like open up your bag and you're like oh my god what did I get
1: yes exactly it's
0: the best, it's the best. all right and my last question for you because this is the balanced dietitian podcast what does balance
1: mean to you balance is an in- Interesting question, because it can even take on diet culture, you know, like it can, it it balance can be used in a diet culture type of way. So Mm -hmm. the way that I look at it from an intuitive eating perspective is variety, Mm. variety, because it doesn't necessarily have to be at the expense of something else, but it, it, but our body does like variety. Uh, our our lives like variety, and if we sit there and get stuck in the same kind of pattern or rhythm or whatever, then uh, things get boring. So mm-hmm. making sure that we have variety that that I think is I I use that terminology over balance because that especially as a perfectionist I can definitely get caught up in yeah is with balanced balance enough you know that's fair.
0: That's fair. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jenna. It was such a great time meeting you, connecting with you and having these big conversations with you.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it my friends, I hope that you
0: enjoyed this podcast episode as much as I did. These types of conversations are so important for us to have and continue to have because as we've talked about, there needs to be some changes in our system and it happens when we bring up awareness to it and talk about it more. So if you enjoyed this podcast episode, I'd love for you to be able to share with a friend, with a family member and engage in these conversations. And if you feel like it, please leave us a review on the podcast. This helps us reach more people so we can increase the impact with these types of conversations. On that note, my friend, I will see you next week in the next podcast episode.